Welcome to Indie Insider, presented by Blackshell Media. This is the weekly show where we talk with video game developers and professionals about their stories, their advice for others, and their thoughts on the indie video game industry. I'm Logan Schultz, and on today's show, I sit down and talk with Kate Edwards, the Executive Director of the International Game Developers Association. We talk at length about her experience with Microsoft, as well as her thoughts on virtual reality, video game fraud, the future of Steam as a marketplace, and the rights of video game developers throughout the world. This is definitely an episode not to be missed. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas on what we should do next, shoot me an email at logan at blackshowmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider Podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. And now, the Executive Director of the International Game Developers Association, Kate Edwards. Welcome to Indie Insider Today! I'm super excited. I'm talking with Kate Edwards, the executive director of the International Game Developers Association. Kate, how's it going? Great. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you. We were actually supposed to talk last week and uh, our schedules didn't align. So uh, I'm glad I finally pinned you down so we can chat just a little bit. Yeah, Um, it's perfect timing. I just got back from a trip yesterday. You actually seem to travel quite a bit. It's been a busy time of year uh, for, for you, I imagine. It is. I mean, I actually, throughout the year, I travel about 50% of the time, and most of that is speaking at different game conferences around the world. So, yeah, it's um, it's very busy. Um, it's it's rare to catch me at home in Seattle, and some people think <laughs> I don't live here. They just they don't know exactly where I live. That's probably, <laughs> you know, it's probably an accurate guess on their part. Fair enough, fair enough. Actually, I feel like I'm in Seattle today. It is pouring outside. It's a dreary, <laughs> it's a dreary Wednesday. Well, here too. Oh, <laughs> uh, well makes sense more often than not right <laughs> yeah <laughs> well uh kate let me ask you it's a wednesday like i said what does a week look like for the executive director of the international game developers association well that's that's a great question um because my weeks and my days are just kind of this huge what i would call a cluster fun of activity <laughs> going on um that's a word that i've been using for a few years now because i tried to figure out a good way to convey that notion to the media without being rude. So, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, cluster fun is kind of my favorite word, and I mean that with all the love and affection that you, that comes with it, anyone doing their job. Um, it, and it's funny, back in November, or no, it was back in September last year, I was speaking at a conference in Sweden, and somebody asked me, what exactly do you do every day? And I had to think about it a sec, and my response to them was, I help people. That's it. If you want to summarize what I do, I help people. And so that takes the form of all kinds of interactions with IGD members and non-members, with professionals who are seeking advice on a job opportunity, on students who are looking to get into the industry, government officials who are looking for uh, insights on how to create a good game development ecosystem in their country, um, media interviews, you know, all on and on it goes. I mean, there's, and then of course, there's all kinds of logistical things that I deal with, like my interaction with our board of directors and anything that's coming from their direction. Um, we have things like our developer satisfaction survey that we do every year, which uh, I'm, you know, basically heading up the research on that and make, overseeing that effort. Um, there's just, there's just so many things going on. I, I would say, easily say that probably at least 90% of my day is stuck in email. Just emails, <laughs> emails, and more emails. And, right. um, 
or, you know, people pinging me on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or somewhere else where they think they can find me. And uh, I, uh, you know, just basically interact with all these people. So that's that's kind of what my day is like. And it just from one day to the next, it tends to change. I mean, a good chunk of it will always be a certain level of communication with responding to requests or, you know, or questions or whatever it might be. But then there's also a certain level of actual development work going on, whether there's, um, you know, things that we're working on as an organization or things that I need to write up or um, whatever it might be. So it's, there's a lot of different stuff going on. But I would say that, you know, the great majority of my, my day and my interaction is spent trying to help people with issues that they come to me with. Well, tell me a little bit about how you help people. And, and within that, Tell me about the International Game Developers Association. What does this company do? Sure. So the IGDA, it's a nonprofit that was started back in 1994. And essentially, we were created to be the professional society for anyone who makes video games. Because there is some, there's a lot of professional societies for different professions around the world. I mean, all kinds of things. And pretty much any profession you can imagine, there is a professional society for it. And um, so the founder of the IGDA, Ernest Adams, was looking at what's called the ACM, which is the Association for Computing Machinery. And ACM has been around a long time. And for um, people who are doing like hardcore software development or programming, the ACM is their professional association. And many, many people belong to it. But in the game industry, we didn't have any some we didn't have anything like that. And so his vision was to essentially create the ACM of the game industry. And so that's why he created the IGDA, which was originally called the Computer Game Developers Association, and eventually became the International Game Developers Association. And a lot of things came out of the IGDA that a lot of people don't know about, like the big game developers conference um, that now is like the dominant um, event of, of our year for game developers. That came out of the IGDA many, many years ago. Um, the Global Game Jam also came out of the IGDA. Um, curriculum standards that are used by many game design schools came out of the IGDA. Um, so there's a lot of big initiatives that come out of this organization. A lot of the interaction people have with the org is through local chapters. So we have over 160 chapters around the world. Um, a lot of a lot in North America because that's where the organization started. So you'll find a lot of chapters in different cities in the U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. some in Mexico. But then we have a lot of chapters around the world, too, um, even in places like Tehran, Bangladesh, you know, and so on. Oh, wow. And um, and so these are communities where game developers come together under the IGD banner. And they also and they like they like to do it under the IGD banner because that makes them part of the IGD family and they interact with other chapters around the world. And, you know, other chap- IGD chapters often will do that. They'll interact with each other because they're IGD chapters and they'll collaborate and get advice from each other, you know, and, and uh, it, it's great to see that going on. And we also have special interest groups, which are divided partially along vocational lines. We have like the game writing SIG and the production SIG and the localization SIG and game design SIG and all these other SIGs like that. And then we also have affinity groups. So we have like women in games, blacks in gaming, Jewish game developers, LGBTQ, and so that we have those groups as well. And so it's basically a community. It's a place where people can come and interact with others. And um, so like, for example, if I get a student coming to me saying, hey, I'd really love to be a game writer. And um, what do I do? You know, what, what am I supposed to do? And of course, one of the first things I usually do is point them straight to the game writing special interest group and say, hey, there are some 
also people in this group, I mean, some very famous writers in our industry in this group. There's just a, it's a great community where you can go in there and say, hi, this is who I am. This is what I'm trying to do. Does anyone have advice for me? And get advice and get direction and find a mentor, um, all that kind of stuff. And mentoring is actually one of the big things that the IGD is focusing on um, lately is that we, um, because mentoring, mentorship and mentoring, that's a, that's a huge part of getting ahead in the industry and also just becoming a better developer and, uh, you know, improving your skills no matter what you do. And so we started something last year called IGD Mentor Cafes, which at different events, which <laughs> are essentially they're like speed dating for mentors and mentees. So we get a bunch of, you know, uh, great mentors with a lot of experience in the industry and people can come in and just get any kind of advice they can imagine. And we mix it up. So we have like artists and programmers and producers and all that. So there's a good variety. And um, yeah, so that, and we're also going to be launching a global mentorship program um, later this year. So it's a, basically going to be a browser and app-based method to find a mentor, um, which should be really helpful for folks. And But you know, the the kind of the bedrock on which the IGD stands and really one of the other main reasons why it was created was to be an advocacy organization. And so we focus on issues that are affecting email developers like crunch time, work-life balance, diversity in the industry, um, the effect of gray markets on indies, you know, sites like G2A and Greenman Games and, you know, the use of Steam keys and how about how that whole dynamic works. Um, all of those kinds of things are things that we speak up about very loudly. Um, we listen to our community and we find things and, and plus we, we are, of course we keep our ear to the ground as well. And if we see something coming down the pipeline, whether it's from a specific government's action, not necessarily the U S could be some government elsewhere. Like when Mexico was going to implement a really restrictive rating system for their games, when they finally decided to go with the ESRB system instead, which was something that we encouraged. Um, and when Australia pulled their funding for a lot of indie games, we also spoke up loudly about that. And fortunately, Australia eventually reinstated that fund from, for indies. And so there's a lot of stuff that we do, um, you know, to speak up and be vocal about what affects game developers and to make sure, especially that game developers themselves speak up and be vocal about it, because it's not just about us saying something, you know, we want them to be advocates as well. Kate, I mean, this is, you're breaking down all the different elements of this, this company, this nonprofit that you, you essentially manage. And it's, it's, it seems like massive. It seems like there's so many different elements that you guys work on and put together. It's, you know, being a community for all these developers and an advocates for their rights and, and what they need. Uh, how do you, or let, let me, let me approach it this way. What is the mission of this company? How do you stay focused amongst all of that? And, and, you know, what's your approach? Well, our, our mission is pretty simple. I mean, we're, you know, as we even stated on our website, we, you know, our, we essentially exist to advance the careers and enhance the lives of game developers. That's our job. That's what we want to do. So we want game developers to get better at what they do. Um, we want them, to, and a lot of getting better means being part of a community and talking with one another because game development is a collaboratively creative art form. It's usually not something that's done solo. I mean, we do see solo developers and they're, they're out there. Um, and that takes a lot of talent, a lot of skill to be able to create a game all by yourself and do everything perfectly. And um, that's why we see a lot of games where, you know, there are small teams. You've got a, a core artist and a programmer and a producer or an audio person or whatever it might be, because we realize that games are a huge undertaking, um, especially on the scale and scope of the game. 
And so one of the things that's really important for people who come into this industry is to understand that this is this is an industry in which you will work with other people in order to get the job done. And yeah, that's true of every other industry too, I get it, but this is one where the very core function of your job requires interaction with other people. Um, and you have to be comfortable with that and you have to be willing to do so, especially be open-minded about it because, you know, you are, it's, it's all about learning. It's all about improving your skill. And, you know, occasionally you'll meet somebody who's coming into this industry saying, yeah, I was the best programmer in my class and I blew everyone away. And, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to have a problem with this. And, um, I kind of like to see those people humbled every once in a while <laughs> when they come in and realize and you see them a couple years later and I'm like, oh, so how's it going? And they're like, oh, this is really tough. This is a, this is tough. It's a tough job. It's a tough industry. It's a lot of work to do. Um, I love it to death. I, you know, I completely love it, but it's just, it's, it's not as easy as I thought it could possibly be. Um, and that's the thing we get a lot. I mean, you get, of course, a lot of people from the consumer side who are like, I love playing games. I want to make games. It's like huge difference, <laughs> right. huge, huge difference. I mean, mm -hmm. the making versus playing. I mean, yeah, we in the industry, we're all gamers. We love to play. Um, you know, we all have our favorite stuff we like to do, but at the same time, you talk to any game developer and almost inevitably they'll tell you, yeah, I haven't played this or I haven't played that yet because I just don't have any time, you know, or I only have time to play the game that I'm actually working on. I don't have time to play anything else. And that's pretty typical. Well, Kate, let's give a little bit of context um, for the audience. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How do you, who are you and how do you end up becoming the executive director of, of such a large nonprofit? Well, that's an interesting story, so I'll try and keep this as quick as possible. So basically, my background, I'm a geographer and a cartographer, and um, I did my master's thesis on virtual worlds technology and how it applies to cartography. That was way back in 1991, when VR was having like its first big emergence into the public consciousness. Right, sure. And so here we are, 20... 26 years later and um, you know the technology course back then was very slow very expensive and now it actually works so all <laughs> the stuff we're seeing with HTC Vive and the Oculus and you know the uh, Google and all, all the other stuff going on it's great for those of us who were around during the first wave it's super exciting because now all of this stuff actually works the way that we envisioned over 25 years ago um, so for me I I I, that was my focus in my geography degree for my master's, and then I went on to pursue my PhD. Um, but I got sidetracked because Microsoft contacted my academic department. I was at the University of Washington in, here in Seattle, and they said, we're looking for a cartographer to work on a card encyclopedia. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. I, I, I am, you know, starving grad student who desperately needs money. So <laughs> I took a contract position, and I was one of the two cartographers working on a card encyclopedia and making all the maps. And so we had to make about 400 maps in about four months. Oh, wow. It was insane. It was an insane amount of work, but it was really fun and really invigorating. And so my contract kept getting renewed for the first three years. And then eventually, and I was kind of kept my PhD on hold a little bit. I was still trying to pursue it, but not very well. Um, and eventually Microsoft gave me a full-time position um, in what was called a geopolitical specialist because they needed someone on the mapping products to help them navigate a lot of the sensitive issues like boundaries that 
you know, where country, two countries like China and India don't agree on the Kashmir region and how it should be portrayed on a map because they both have different claims, overlapping claims in that region, um, you know, or disputed things like that or sensitive place names and all that kind of stuff. So that's what my initial job, full-time job at Microsoft entailed. Okay. And so as I was in that job, I was getting asked questions from all over the company every kind of question you can imagine about, is this flag okay? Can we use this gesture? You know, because they found out that there's a geographer working at Microsoft. So all the <laughs> other, these other teams would come and ask me all these questions. Well, um, eventually, the, one of the game teams on the PC side, because at that time, the Xbox didn't exist. There was really only Flight Sim was the only, quote, game coming out of Microsoft. But there was also all the PC gaming stuff that just got ramped up because um, they had bought FOSA and they had MechWarrior franchise and, you know, Call of Asheron and all that stuff that they were working on on the PC side. And so I got involved in that stuff um, while I was still in my function doing the mapping stuff. And eventually we had this huge problem with Age of Empires, the first Age of Empires, where we had a big problem in Korea. I won't go into all the details because it's just, it takes too long to explain. But basically, <laughs> sure. it was a huge problem where we, we made a fix in the Atlas, in Carter World Atlas product. And three months later, Age of Empires came out and they had the exact same mistake. And so the Korean government was extremely upset about it. Um, and, you know, they don't understand that the Encarta team is on way over on that side of the company, and the game team is way over on the other side. And, of course, they don't talk to each other. They have no reason to. And so that was where I got the idea for creating a team inside Microsoft to coordinate that kind of knowledge. And so I, I was able to create that team. I was given permission to do so by one of the VPs at the company, and I created a team called Geopolitical Strategy. So my job at the company was to protect the Microsoft from political and cultural risks in all of their products. And so I did work on pretty much everything there. I touched it. Um, and then that included all the games. And so when the Xbox project got started, I, um, I was working on all the PC stuff. But then when Xbox got started, I ended up working on pretty much every Microsoft game that they created all the halos and fables and age of empires and all of that stuff. And so my job function was essentially to help them navigate the use of history, the use of religion, symbology, character design that might mimic different cultures, um, using historical scenarios. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that, that traditionally the localization people, they mainly focus on language translation. So they sure. translate the games to make those adaptable in other cultures, but for or for other languages, but for me, I was focused on the non-linguistic stuff. So all of the other things that either the consumers or the governments in these different countries would react to and be really pissed off about and ban the products. <laughs> and um, so that was my job. And being a, a gamer geek from very young, Pong was my first video game way back when. Excellent. And being a geek in general, because I grew up with Star Wars and Star Trek and all that good stuff. So for me, doing what I call this culturalization work on video games was the absolute heaven. It, it was per the perfect job for me. And, um, and so that's how I kind of stumbled backwards into video games through my job at Microsoft. And then when I left in 2005, I decided that I really wanted to focus primarily on games. And that's how I got involved in the IGDA, because I knew that that was the place to get involved in the industry and connect with others who are in different job functions. So I joined the IGDA. And uh, within a couple of years, I created the localization special interest group in the IGDA because there wasn't one and I felt there needed to be one. And so I led that for several years. And then I helped restart the Seattle chapter because it had kind of gone quiet. 
And so I was really active in the IGD community as I was getting, getting my consulting up to speed and everything. And um, eventually the board of directors came to me in late 2012 and they asked me if I'd be interested in, um, in interviewing for the executive director position. And I said, yes, sure. I, I didn't really mean it at that time. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> I haven't had to do an interview for a job for over 20 years. I'm like, yeah, why not? Sure. You know, I, I had some thoughts I wanted to share with them about how, how the IGA could be run better because I wasn't entirely happy with how things were going at the time. And um, sure enough, within three weeks, I went through another interview and um, I was offered the job. So I've been in this job for, what, four and a half years now, and I still do my culturalization consulting on the side. I told them that it's, you know, it's my life's work. It's, it's now my hobby, whereas running the IGD is my day job. And so I <laughs> sure. still, but I'm actively working in the game industry. I just finished up some DLC for Dead Rising 4. I worked on Mass oh, Effect wow. Andromeda. Um, yeah, there's, I still have my fingers out there in, in the real world of game development. <laughs> well, hey, congratulations on Mass Effect. I know that just came out. Yeah, thank so, you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I want, I want to ask a couple of questions about this story because it's actually quite an impressive story. I mean, when you were working with Microsoft and you're, you know, you're doing the geopolitical strategy um, uh-huh. that the team you put together – you said that was heaven, but what was that actual work like? I mean, you're it's kind of a high-level thing, working with government and political strategy and, and, I guess, you know, keeping people happy. I mean, it seems like kind of a big deal. It is. It, it is a big deal. <laughs> I mean, I kind of brush it off because, I mean, I've been doing that kind of work for well over 20 years now. Right. You know, and it, it's kind of normal to me, but it is, it, it, you have to, there's a lot of heavy responsibility that comes with it because you are making decisions that will affect Microsoft's business model, which is no small thing. Um, you are, you know, there's times where I had to go brief Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer on why a game or some other issue was banned or something happened that had a cultural or geopolitical angle to it. So I, I was the one who had to go in there and explain that this is what happened. And that's not, that's not for the meek to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, this is coming from someone who grew up being extremely shy and very introverted. And I had to get over that very quickly in order to be able to do that kind of job and to, um, you know, to uh, to be able to t- have that kind of high level conversation with those kinds of people. And, um, you know, and that's kind of part of my underlying you know, but when I, when I look back on my career, it's like for me, that's that's my 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 keys. I always want to challenge myself. That's one of the reasons I left Microsoft because I'd been there for 13 years. I love the work that I do. That's why I still do it on the side. But I was not feeling as challenged as I as I should be. And so, you know, I felt like I accomplished everything I needed to do in that job. And that's one of the reasons why I left. And so I became self-employed. And that's that's a challenge <laughs> being self-employed as anyone who has done that knows. Um, so, but in the geopolitical job, you know, you're giving advice to, you know, this, this company with, with a lot of goals and a lot of money and a lot of, a lot is at stake because, you know, for the most part, a company like Microsoft, as large as they are, if, if one game, game gets banned in a certain market that's not going to cause a huge uproar for them obviously it's serious but we're probably not going to panic about it but if it's a grievous enough mistake so like something was put in the game that was really incredibly offensive to the point where the government is like hey 
you know what? That's it. We're tired of this. We're done with you. And so it's one thing to ban one game. What if the government comes back and says, um, you know what? We're going to ban Office and Windows, too. That's when it has a huge effect because obviously Office and Windows are Microsoft's bread and butter. It's how the company stays afloat. Um, you know, of course, they're getting a lot of cloud services stuff, too. But All right. Um, but it's that connection, which is, you know, um, which is really serious. So, yeah, so I took the job very seriously, obviously. And, and you have to be very careful about how you approach these things. You need to be very open-minded about it. Look at it from different angles, um, you know, and you have to come up with a solution that ultimately is, is what's going to serve the business. And so I've had people, I give a lot of lectures on this topic all over the place and, um, sometimes I'll get audience members in the Q&A session will say, hey, it sounds like you're a censor or you're political correctness police or you're, you're, you're this or you're that or you're this. Or, or is it ethical what you do to actually change things like this um, or to tweak things, you know, in, just in order to get business? It's like, well, that's the point, though. It, it's about business. And so Microsoft has to make a decision or not. To, I mean, I'm just using it as, a, as an example, obviously. Right, of course, of course. Because after I left Microsoft, I actually was asked by Google to, to serve as a vendor for them. And so I was a vendor for six years and I helped create their geopolitical team just like I did at Microsoft. So I helped Google navigate all these issues with Google Maps and Google Earth. So I kind of went through the whole same whole process with them that I'd gone through Microsoft years earlier and um, it's the same situation. I mean, you're advising this company on the best way for them to handle their business and navigate this very sensitive issue. And so you have to take it extremely seriously. Um, you really got to do your homework and make sure you know that you are capturing the essence of what um, of what's happening on the ground and what the opinions might be. And so a lot of my, a lot of that is served by my ge uh, geography background because you're kind of taught how to think that way and where to find that information. Um, you know, another, a lot of it too is just you build up that knowledge over time. You, you know, you get the experience, you understand what is risky where, um, and you know how to do risk assessment and, um, you know, and ultimately that's what it is. You're serving the role of the business, but ultimately the way what I tell companies when I work with them is that my job ultimately is to help you respect the customer's expectations. And so the customer and the, the person who's going to play your game or the people who are going to use your software, you have to respect who they are as a culture and as a people. And by doing so, you know, or how to do that is you may have to tweak things in your content that are more appealing to, from the, to their perspective than it is to yours. And unfortunately, sometimes that perspective may be mutually exclusive with somebody in a country, uh, country next door to them. And that's just the way it is. And so that's where you have to like come up with different versions of games or different versions of content so that that content's going to serve well in India, whereas this one will serve well in China because the two aren't going to work together. I mean, those two pieces of content may not work in both places. So, um, you know, so it's a lot of, it's, you know, it's a lot of that kind of thinking that goes into it. Um, it's very strategic because you're also thinking about um, exactly you know, if we do this now, do we set a precedent for always doing it for every product we always come out with? Um, so you have to be also be very judicious about when you give certain kinds of advice, um, you know, on these issues. So it's, it's tricky. And it's a very, it's a very tricky dynamic, but I love it. I absolutely love it. 
<laughs> it sounds like you love it. I mean, you've you've clearly spent so much of, of your time and and so much of your brain space is is built around you know the strategy behind this. So that makes so much sense. And it's clear to me that y- you are no stranger to some high level, high pressure positions. So I mean, uh-huh. you seem like an obvious choice for the executive director <laughs> of the Game Developers Association. So that makes so much sense to me. Uh, if I can ask you, there was one point in there I wanted to hit on before we moved away from it. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of people in this industry. Uh, who are making games, putting themselves out there, suffer from being shy or introverted. And you said, I mean, that was something that you had to work through pretty quickly. How do you, how, what worked for you? How do you get yourself to not be shy and introverted and actually find a way to stand in front of Bill Gates and tell him <laughs> that, you know, that there's a problem? Well, yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, you know, cause I do meet a lot of people and I mean, it just seems to come with creative folks in general is that a lot of us are introverted. I mean, if you look at Myers-Briggs scale, I'm an INTP and that's never going to change. Oh, okay. You know, and so, you know, but that's not always the best measure. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's fun to do Myers-Briggs tests and kind of get a sense of where you might be. Um, but obviously that doesn't sum up everything about you. But, um, you know, you do have to put yourself in a situation and challenge yourself Um because you will get over it and I won't say get over it entirely, but you can get to a point. Like I like to tell people I'm what they call an extroverted introvert, you know, or cause I, so I can fake extroversion and I have to in my job because when I go to conferences, I have to be on, I have to be, you know, friendly and outgoing and do my talks and all, you know, shake hands and meet people and do all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of the day, I go back to my hotel room and just kind of be by myself, my own little <laughs> cocoon of, of introversion and just kind of recharge my, my introversion batteries. And um, I think for a lot of introverts, that's the way it is. That's, that's kind of how you operate. Um, and a lot of it though, is you just have to keep putting yourselves in a situation where um, you challenge yourself to, to be pushed that way. Um, and that's, to me, that's all it was. I mean, like I, in grad school, occasionally my professor who I was a, a teaching assistant for, he would call up and say, Hey, I'm not making it in today. You got to teach the class. And I'd be like mortified, absolutely mortified. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you know, the material, don't worry about it. Just go, you know, just teach the class. Of course, I, I'm an introvert. I don't want to get, <laughs> get up in front of class and teach this class of 90 people. Um, but you have to, I mean, you know, you could basically, you're in a situation where you have no choice. You have to step up in the moment. And I'm sure I was absolutely horrible. I'm glad you weren't smartphones back then because nobody recorded it. So, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, you basically have to challenge yourself and, and do that. I mean, if there's opportunities to do like a pitch contest that, you know, people should do it like indies who are, who want to pitch their game idea. And it just, it takes a lot of practice, but you know, you got to keep putting yourself in a situation where you'll get more and more comfortable with the idea that you're going to be speaking out in front of other people um, or have to interact with other people. Because like I said before, it's like, that is so integral to this, to this industry that you have to interact with other people and know how to work with them. And, and so one way or another, you have to just keep putting yourself in that situation. Absolutely. Well, you challenged yourself quite a bit. You started your own company. And, you know, for a little over four years ago, you became the executive director of the IGDA, which let's move back to talking about just a bit, uh, since yeah. this is the video game podcast. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break here, so stay with us. I'm Logan Schultz, and you're listening to Indie Insider.
We love that you're here and enjoying the show, but we always want to share these stories and interviews with as many people as possible, and we could really use your help with that. Of course, if you enjoy the show, please tell people either in person or across social media. However, the absolute best thing you can do to help is to leave us a review on iTunes. Also, if you have questions for myself or the guests, something you'd like us to discuss, you can reach out to me via email at logan at blackshowmedia.com, or you can follow along on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. Uh, tell me a little bit about you know what you guys are working on now. Are there certain projects, things you're putting together for the members of this society? Uh, I guess to help you know enhance their lives, as your mission says. We are. I mean, so we're always trying to gather more benefits because you know we are a membership dues organization. That's that's how the IGD runs, and so a lot of people join the IGD because of this tangible benefits they get. And so we're working on uh, discounts for things coming out in the near future, things like Unity, things like Razor. Um, So there's tangible benefits. A lot of times people will join initially just for that reason, because they want the tangible benefit, like a discount at GDC or discount at some conference somewhere. And we have all kinds of conferences covered all over the world. Um, So that's one reason. But a lot of people stay with the IGA and they renew their membership because of the intangible benefits. So they found out that, wow, it really was helpful for me to be a part of that special interest group, or I got some great advice from my local chapter when I went to one of their meetings. Um, you know, so all of that is, is great. Um, you know, so that's, that's really what we want to hear is that people want to, you know, rejoin because they believe in the organization and, um, in what we're doing. Um, more specifically, like I mentioned earlier is that we are rolling out this year, a global mentorship program, because we realize that mentorship is a very key aspect of, of basically what we do as an organization. And we know it happens casually all the time. It happens in the SIGs, it happens in the chapters. But we want to formalize it a little bit and make it a lot easier for people to find a mentor. So that's where we're going to come up with a, um, a mentorship platform where people can easily find a mentor. So we're going to invite a lot of people, you know, veteran people to come in, set up a mentor profile, and they'll be able to basically indicate, here's what I'm willing to mentor on, here's how much I'm available, and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll allow people as mentees to also set up a profile saying, this is basically what I'm looking for. This is the kind of advice I need. And obviously we're, we're encouraging people to be um, as specific as possible because, you know, when people go to a conference and they want to talk to some well-known game dev or veteran or somebody and get some advice, um, they need to be very specific or as specific as possible with what they actually need. Because, you know, I get it all the time. I get it every day. People coming to me with um, questions and if you know it's a big difference between asking me how do i get in the game industry it's a very big very big answer (laughs) Um, versus asking me hey i applied for this one company for this specific position i got this feedback about my my resume um i'm not quite sure where to go with this you know what to do with it you know can you help me out here yeah that's a much more specific question about you know a specific opportunity and so um I mean, yeah, it's important. If they have no clue, if they don't have any idea, then there's all kinds of resources out there um, about how to get into the industry. And like I said, if they specifically know what they want to do in the industry, they should, you know, hook up with one of the special interest groups and ask people in that group, how did you become a game writer? How did you become a production producer or whatever? Um, Yeah. 
I mean, the the mentorship program doesn't sound like such a huge thing when you're talking about it. Maybe that's just because, you know, you've dealt with such big things, kind of as you said, that, you know, maybe uh-huh. you brush this things off a little too, you know, <laughs> uh, or, or you just brush them off when you're talking about them. But, I mean, that's a that's a big project. How many people are on staff with the IGDA? Um, well, the total paid staff are three people. That's that's, that's mind-blowing. So are all of you kind of, you know, just putting all this together yourselves? Yeah, we are. But we also have a huge army of volunteers because the, the IGDA, I mean, yeah, we have a small, lean staff. But at the same time, we have a massive, massive army of volunteers in the IGDA. So every chapter leader, every SIG leader is a volunteer. Even our um, global board of directors are all volunteers. And so to me, that speaks a lot to the passion that people have for the organization and for their willingness to, you know, to donate their time and to contribute and because they realize how important it is. And oftentimes, of course, the people who are on the different chapter boards or run the chapters are the very same people who benefited from getting involved in those chapters early on because uh, they realize that, yeah, hey, this is a great community. I want to see it keep going. I want to contribute to this and and, uh, and see it forward. And so I, I love the fact that we've got that dynamic going on. And so we in the staff level, so like for the Global Mentorship Program, it is something that we are getting funding for from from external uh, funding sources that are, that also believe in the ideas and they're helping support us, which is allowing us to hire some part-time help to actually come in and get some of the work done. Um, so yeah, there's, there's different, so it's not like absolutely everything being done by three people. It's like, we're basically the three major cat herders and um, <laughs> you know, on our three staff members, myself, of course, I run the organization as a whole, and I'm also primarily responsible for being the spokesperson of the organization, doing a lot of the outreach, um, you know, speaking at events, speaking to the media, um, being pretty much the advocate in chief in terms of what we focus on as an organization and advocate on. And um, then Tristan Hightower, she's our director of operations, and she she primarily focuses on all of our all of our internal communities. So not only dealing with all the infrastructure of our website and everything, but also overseeing the chapters and special interest groups. And then Jillian Mood, she's our partner and member relations manager. And so she basically oversees all of our external um, relationships. So relationships with sponsors, studio affiliates, academic affiliates, partners, and so on and so forth. So all the organizations out there um, that, you know, want to sponsor us or be a part of our community. Here's a question for you, Kate, that I can't stop thinking about. You're you're talking about the IGDA and all your work with that. You've talked about, you know, you're still doing your own company. You're consulting on the side. Um, you talked about how you just worked um, on some games yourself, Mass Effect Andromeda. We talked about how the hell do you find time for all of this? And, I mean, that's a question I ask, you know, through the lens of people who might be listening to the show who – you know, are also working full-time jobs and also want to be devs on the side and, you know, who are, who are trying to build up to that. How do you find time for all of that? Well, um, yeah, there's a, there's several ways to look at it. Well, number one, I'm, I'm divorced. Number two, my daughter is, she's almost 20, she's 29 going on 30 this year. Okay. So she, you know, so she's got her own life and doing just great as a costume designer in Southern California. And um, very cool. Yeah, so that's uh, we cosplay together at different events like San Diego Comic Con. So we have a great, a great time. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's where I, I just came back from WonderCon this past weekend down in Southern California. And, oh, okay, uh, for that very reason. So, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I basically it's it's primarily just me, and um, I'm 
you know, but really what's driving it is passion. I love what I do. I love doing the IGD work and helping people out. And I love doing the culturalization work. And, you know, I, I would think that some people would probably look at me and say, wow, you are just the worst kind of workaholic. And I, you know, I, I'm not going to completely deny that, but at the same time, I would say, but I love what I do. I love waking up every day and doing what I do and pursuing what I pursue. And, um, you know, for me, I'm one of those people who are just insatiably curious about everything. I think that's why I eventually ended up in geography because my first major was aerospace engineering because I wanted to be an astronaut. And my second major was industrial design because I wanted to be a conceptual artist for Lucasfilm so I could work on Star Wars. Oh, wow. And um, which I eventually got to work for four years on Star Wars, the Old Republic video games. So that was a goal ticked off. I did get to work on something <laughs> Star Wars related. There you go. Um, and... Um, so I have just a vast amount of interests, and I guess I've got a lot of drive around those interests. And so, you know, I think the people who are, I know a lot of people who are looking to get into the game industry or, you know, or they're in a, a job at a game company in a larger studio, but they want to be indie, as many people do. Um, that's one of the things that has been revealed in our developer survey we do every year, that um, when we ask developers, you know, who do you want to work for? Um, by name. And of course, Blizzard is almost always number one. Say they want to work for Blizzard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Blizzard, Bioware, they're always in the top, uh, top companies. But my own company is always in the top three. Um, because there's just, and I think that kind of underscores yet again the point that game development is an art form because the kind of responses we get on the survey are very consistent with what you would hear from writers, painters, filmmakers, you know, all these other art forms where basically their ultimate desire is to do their own thing. And so, you know, how many people do you know who want to be an author? Well, they've got a full-time day job. They might be, you know, whatever, an accountant by day and they go home at night and they work on their book. And, um, you know, you look at John Grisham, he was a lawyer and he became, you know, famous and, and rich writing books about legal cases and all kinds of legal thrillers. And, um, so, you know, I, I think it's important that people have to find the time. They have to march, find that margin. And it's really important that they, you know, make it makes you have to make a tremendous effort. I'll put it that way. But you have to set aside the time, even if it's a calendar item that you put in your calendar every single day, even if it's one hour to do something on the side. Um, and I know it's busy. People have families, people have jobs, they have, you know, even their jobs are super busy. Um, but you got to be able to find that margin um, where you have even an hour a day or a few hours a week where you can focus on something that you want to do. It's your incubation project. And even for myself, as busy as I am running the IGDA and as busy as I am, um, you know, doing my consulting work, I still have incubation projects on top of that, that I'm kind of toying with of on, course, the, on right. the side. And, <laughs> um, but also most importantly, you have, you've got to make sure you have find your downtime. And so for some people working on these kind of pet projects, whether it's like working on their own little game, um, as a portfolio piece or writing a book or whatever it might be, that is their downtime. That's what helps them relax. Um, you know, and, and people should not be doing it if they feel like it's a burden. Um, because they're like, oh gosh, now I got to work on this game. I'm trying to finish. And that should not be, if you're finding that you have that attitude towards whatever you're doing as your hobby or as your kind of your long-term goals, and yet that might be a sign that that may not be the right field for you. 
Um, so you got to be you got to be conscious of how you feel about things and how you know kind of how you're spending your time. I think that's important. It's an important thing to say. Um, so I appreciate you you bringing that up. I think you mentioned in there the developer satisfaction survey. You mentioned at the beginning too before we started. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So we um, the IHD we started back in 2004. What we call used to be called the quality of life survey. And um, essentially what it was, was, was gauging developers' opinions on things like work-life balance, <coughs> pardon me, and crunch time, uh, which is an ongoing pervasive issue in our industry where that's basically, as we define it, is where companies basically demand your time. If you're working for a company and they say, hey, you're going to be working 16 hours a day until this game is finished. And it's, it was like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I've got family or I've got other commitments and... Um, it's like, well, that's nice. You can leave your job because there's 20 other people who will easily take it right now. You know, and they kind of put that kind of pressure on employees that, you know, essentially this, you really kind of have no choice unless you want to just find another job. And, um, you know, a lot of that, as our survey indicates, is, is that's developers will say that's poor project management. That's not, you know, it's not really necessary to have crunch time. But anyway, that's just one example, um, that comes out of our survey. So we, um, used to be called the quality of life survey. And then when I came on board as executive director, I wanted to kind of reinvigorate that research effort. And so we recreated it as the developer satisfaction survey in which we're essentially trying to gauge developers, um, not only their, the demographics of the developers of who's taking the survey, but also understanding how they feel about their specific jobs. So the job, you know, what their, the jobs they're in, the working conditions in their job, um, you know, employment benefits, all of that kind of stuff, salary. Um, so having an understanding of that. But then we also gauge some of their opinions on larger issues affecting the industry. Like where do they think the industry is going? Um, where pro- predominant technology do you think is going to emerge in the next five years? Um, you know, what, what um, factors do they think? What creates a negative perception of the game industry in the eyes of the public? Um you know, based on, um, you know, based on their perception. So there's a lot of, so there's kind of those two levels. So their specific jobs as well as their, um, their view on the industry as a whole. So, I mean, that you're going through that right now, correct? And, and mm-hmm. that's something that, yes. um, is that exclusive to members or do you no, want everybody to No, it's open to anyone, it, yeah. anyone at all. It doesn't matter. It's open to students. It's open to academics. It's open to anyone who has anything to do with game development. And it's so, also available in eight languages. <laughs> so where do people find this satisfaction survey? Um, they can go to the IHD website. And so there is under uh, the IHDA, um, there is a developer satisfaction cert under advocacy. So it's, it's IHDA.org. And then they can go to advocacy. And then there's a drop down for de- developer satisfaction survey. And then they can go to the DSS 2017. And um, that's where they will find it. Excellent. Well, Kate, thank you so much for talking to me, talking about the IGDA um, your, and sharing your story. I mean, it's an impressive story. So thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, if you don't mind, I would love to pick your brain just a little bit on some bigger topics, uh, things affecting the industry as a whole, uh, and especially indie developers and, and their work, if you don't mind sticking around just a little bit longer. No, absolutely not. That'd be great. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is something that you've actually mentioned a couple times, um, but I've been saving until now. I want to talk about crunch time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something we haven't talked about much on this show before, but it's something that really affects the industry and uh, indies to to some extent, right? Um, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on 
on this. You, I mean, you kind of explained it before. It's this idea that companies demand your time, demand that you, you know, uh, put in so much to kind of hit that deadline or hit that work. But what what are your thoughts? How do we alleviate that problem? Well, there, there's a sub, there's a few dimensions to this. I mean, when we, like I said, when we talk about crunch time, what we're primarily talking about is when a company it's top down demanding of your time. Um, so it's when management at a specific company will say, you know, this is how much you're going to work. And um, you really don't have much of a choice. And um, so that that's a problem. You know, we understand that um, we basically see it as a difference between the bottom up approach, which we, we tend to call the groove. So, you know, we get people get into a creative groove. Um, and it happens in every creative industry that, that exists. Every creative person will get into a groove. I know people who are writers, you know, who will just like get into this writing tear for 72 hours and then just drop dead asleep. Um, <laughs> you know, but they, because they didn't want to stop. They were on a roll. They had a great idea. They wanted to develop it to its full conclusion before they lost it. And I totally understand that because that's the nature of creative work. And we see that in the game industry too. And I don't think there's any problem at all with short term groove like that where you get into that mode where you just got to do it and so that's completely understandable um you know but the the problem is that when a company comes to you and and, and as an employee and says that hey this is the way it's going to be we're basically going to impose groove upon you um which you don't do groove it's not something you impose and you know it's something that just happens as you're going through the creative process right. and instead it's like that's why they call it crunch because you know, basically the company is crunching your time and basically putting into a situation where they're trying to squeeze every drop out of you as a turnip that's possible to get, you know, whatever level of productivity out of you. And it's just not, it just not, it just isn't productive. I mean, that's why last year we partnered with an organization called TakeThis.org and TakeThis.org focuses on mental health issues in the game industry, uh, both on the gamer side and on the game developer side. And they're a great organization and they have this focus. They they do something called AFK rooms at events like PAX, um, the different PAX events around the world, um, which gives people a space to basically go and chill out and not have the pressure or the intensity that you get at a conference environment um, because not everyone can handle that. Um, and so take this.org and the IGDA partnered on a white paper we released um, last year called Crunch Hurts. And we very clearly outlined with medical science behind us that crunch is basically um, you can sustain about two weeks of crunch as a human being. But after that, your the return on investment uh, drops incredibly fast. Um, so basically, you can handle about two weeks. Um, and that's very rare for a company to impose only two weeks of crunch. Most crunch periods that we hear about last far longer than that. They last for many weeks, if not months. And, um, you know, the companies think that this is a way to, you know, improve the game and get, uh, you know, uh, get better results. But at the same time, you know, like our, like our um, study, the Crunch Hurts white paper showed, is that um, they've even linked the fact that lower, there's lower Metacritic scores are tied to the, um, it, to the level of crunch that a company can do, um, which that's really not what you want to see because the whole idea that management pushes with crunch is that it actually is to make a better product, right? To make a better game. And yet the results are exactly the opposite. Is that if you're seeing lower <laughs> Metacritic scores when they did more crunch, then obviously there's something massively broken there. And um, 
So when we asked game developers in our survey, what do you think are the causes of crunch? Well, it's no surprise that the number one reason they cite is poor project management. And, and I mean, that's, that's often why when I give talks on this topic and I'll put up a slide and I'll say crunch mode in every other industry, it's usually called quote, poor project management. But in the game industry, it's somehow taken on this luster, um, you know, like it's some kind of rite of passage that developers must endure and go through in order to be a quote, real developer. And that's all bullshit. It really is. I mean, sure. you know, and that was actually the title of my little talk at PAX Dev last year was called Crunch is Bullshit. And, um, you know, and because one of the things that we look at, too, especially the IHD is an international organization, you look at the behaviors in other countries. Well, a lot of countries, especially in Europe, have laws against overtime and they have laws against excessive labor exploitation like that at the federal level, not just at their you know, local level. And so... Um, like in Germany, for example, you cannot crunch, you cannot do overtime without getting permission. Now, yeah, some companies do, and they kind of try and work around the jurisdiction, but for the most part, they don't. And guess what? There are successful game companies with successful games in Germany. And so somehow they are <laughs> able to figure it out that they can crunch, or they, excuse me, that they don't have to crunch, and they can still be a successful company and make successful games. And so obviously... For anyone like based in North America, because it is something of a geographic phenomenon that we see a lot of crunch practices in North America and in East Asia. In a lot of the rest of the world, it tends to vary a bit, but you know, depending on the cultural values and the work about work and about work-life balance. Um, but for sure. the most part, it's North America and East Asia as an issue. Um, and so, yeah, so this is... This is kind of where we are. And, um, you know, in order to stop this, I mean, well, I think there's n numerous things that have to happen. One of the things that the IHD has been doing is we've actually been very, we launched a new crunch initiative last year in which what we're trying to do is to highlight companies that are doing it really well. Um, you know, companies that are very open, like Disruptor Beam in Boston or Insomniac. Um, you know, they're, um, you know, these are companies that have come out and said, we don't crunch or we do it as minimally as possible because we, you know, we value the, our employees' time and the, and the balance that they need as, you know, as human beings. And that's great. And, you know, so I, what we want to do is highlight companies like those and show people, show the companies that are not doing well saying, look, here's a great example of how you can improve your work practices so you don't have to do this anymore. Um, you know, and I think a lot of it, frankly, is just a matter of will that management is it's something that they can change very rapidly if they wanted to. But I think mm -hmm. some companies are kind of they're very risk averse because like, well, this model works, though. This this has been working for us for years. And yet they don't realize that what they've created is basically a, a, a grinder that a lot of people don't like and they, they get really pissed off and they get disenfranchised with their, you know, their starry eyed vision of working in the game industry. And they realize that this is what it's really like. And it kind of sucks away all their joy um, for game development. And that obviously we don't want to see that that should not be happening. And, um, and I think more companies are starting to get the message. They're starting to better understand that this is not sustainable. And yet at the same time, um, we're not seeing them make a lot of progress towards it. So this is one of the things where we, as the IG, are going to continue to put a lot of vocal and public pressure um, around this issue. But we, I also feel that developers themselves, they must speak up about this. 
because, it, you know, a lot of them don't because they're fearful of losing their job or they're fearful of repercussions in the, in the workplace. But I mean, if more and more of them spoke up about it, and especially I've challenged people who are looking for work, when they go to a company, they should be asking that company about their crunch practices. Ask them point blank and say, you know, and say, how much do you crunch? How long, you know, how many hours during crunch time and how long is the crunch period? Um, and ask them these questions bluntly and especially express to the company that if, if the company came back and said, well, you know, those, there's times we'll crunch, you know, 16 hours a day for eight weeks. You know, and a prospective employee should basically just tell them that's bullshit. That's ridiculous. I mean, seriously, what is wrong with you people that you can't create a game without crunching up to that degree? Um, you know, so, and I, I understand that kind of goes back to the whole thing about being an introvert. <laughs> because <laughs> most introverts are not going to make that statement in a job interview. Um, in fact, most uh, anyone is not going to make a statement like that in a job interview, but I do feel that, you know, it is going to take a certain level of boldness on the part of people to make a statement and, and express their, their dissatisfaction with that approach. Um, so it's, yeah. Well, and, and here's a question for you, Kate, within that. Uh, this industry can be so difficult to get into, and there's so many people that want to do this work. Is there a fear that if you don't speak up, you'll be... I don't know, blackballed from this industry or, or kept out from certain companies or, yeah, or, or that yeah, idea? I, I think, I think people fear that. I think it's an irrational fear because I mean, I, you know, there's no one tracking like, well, Hey, you know, so-and-so, I mean, yeah, maybe there's through the informal, you know, uh, conversations that might happen locally, like say here in Seattle or in Raleigh or in Austin or somewhere like that, where that, you know, game developer meetups will say, yeah, yeah, I interviewed that person. And, you know, I didn't like their answers. Like, oh, okay, I'll be careful next time if they come looking for a job from us. Sure. You know, I mean, that, sure, that happens. And it happens in any, any industry. Um, right. You know, and so, yeah, that is a concern that people should, that people can have. Um, and it's a valid concern, too. I guess to, a lot of it comes down to just a matter of how bold the specific individual is willing to be and how much this issue really matters to them. Because if, if work-life balance really does matter to them, then they should be vocal about it. They need, they need to be honest to the company about this issue because otherwise the companies are never going to really get it. That um, And I think, honestly, this is one of the areas where the companies really start to notice is if they get more and more applicants actually expressing dissatisfaction with that approach, then the, that's when the company starts to take notice because of, like if we can't hire talent because of our of our work practices, then we need to change our work practices. You know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but I know, but I understand that it's not an easy thing to do. Well, and if people want to, I mean, they can fill out a satisfaction survey that we just talked about, right, with the IGDA, and, exactly, and, and bring that stuff up to you. Absolutely. Uh, and you've said a big part of the IGDA is advocacy, right? Advocating mm -hmm. for developers if, when it comes to crunch time, when it comes to um, you know, gray market uh, issues and, uh -huh. and, and, you know, other elements that we've talked about. Um, so yeah, it, it's great that you, they have that resource, I suppose I should say. That's the right way to put it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and that's just, that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons why we do the survey, because that's part of what we do is to engage the developers and understand what, what are their concerns right now? Um, you know, and year over year, I wouldn't say the concerns change radically, 
but um, you know they, they do start to shift. I mean, like right now with the emergence of VR and AR technology, we're starting to hear concerns about you know traditional game developers and what that's going to mean to them, and you know are, are my skills going to be applicable in VR and AR games? And I would say, well, yeah, they are. I mean, I I don't see any problem there, but but nonetheless, you know, technological disruption is still disruption, and um, you know it does make people concerned about the future of the industry and the future of the game's medium and whatnot. But frankly, I think that's why a lot of us like working in the game industry because it is technology dependent. And so it kind of it kind of keeps us on our toes. We can't get too settled in on one particular technology or one particular approach. That's actually a great segue to talk about um, our, our, our next topic, our next question. Um, virtual reality, you mentioned it in your personal story that, you know, when you were first kind of you know, getting started, it was this first wave of VR, this technology that maybe kind of worked a little bit. Mm-hmm. But now we're in this time where VR really works and it's a, a potentially major aspect of our industry. From your perspective uh, through the IGDA and uh, with the people you work with, what are you seeing uh, with VR? How is it affecting our industry? How is it affecting indies? Is this going to be a viable way for indie developers to to develop? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, obviously the biggest problem with, with VR and AR right now is, is finding the marketplace. I mean, the, you know, clearly there's a marketplace for indie games, there's, even though that's becoming highly saturated on Steam and elsewhere. Um, but nonetheless, there's a market for it. With AR and VR games, you know, what is the install base of that technology at the moment? It's very, very, very small. And, um, you know, do we expect it to ramp up anytime soon? It's like, well, over time, yes. I still think it's going to be at least probably three to five years to see a really viable public consumption of VR and AR content. Um, you know, it all depends, though. I could be completely wrong depending on whether or not somebody comes up on, with the, quote, killer app. Um, which I think right. is really what is, is needed right now for both AR and VR. Frankly, I don't think Pokemon Go is, it's kind of mild AR. Um, right. Yep. You know, I mean, it's a good, it's a very, it was, I think Pokemon Go is a very good entry point for helping the consumers understand the concept that it's location based. Um, but to me, that's all Pokemon Go is. It's not really an AR game. It's just a location based game. Um, you know, and that's that's totally fine. I think it's kind of a, a slow ramp up to helping them understand because you know AR games will be location based. That's by their very nature. It's mostly what's going to well, not all of them, but um, <laughs> right. you know. But I think it helps the public kind of expand their definition of what a game can be um, because we know the consumer perception is going to lag quite significantly behind the industry and. Um, so finding the marketplace is tough, but then again, it's for a lot of developers that's really exciting. So for indie devs, I think they're you know it's this is a great time to explore the medium, and I think especially for indie devs because they have already shown the mainstream um, consumer population, especially the mainstream game publishers, that their content is where the innovation is happening. Um, that is why you know major platforms like Xbox and PlayStation and what else. You know, that's why they bent over backwards to accommodate um, publishing indie works on their platforms, because they understood that um, there's a massive difference between the the really cool, exciting, innovative stuff coming from the indie community versus having yet another Call of Duty and yet another Halo and yet another Grand Theft Auto. I'm not dissing those games at all. I love all those games, actually. Right, of course. Um, 
but it's just those things, those large franchise games exist to sustain the large publishing model and they are very risk averse and very safe. That's why we keep seeing sequels. Um, not to mention the fact that people still love the IP. I mean, I'm still a Halo geek. I worked on three of the games, but I love Halo. <laughs> um, I still love playing it. So, um, you know, but, but we're, you know, a lot of the cool, really cool, exciting innovation is coming from the indie community. So that there's no reason to say that's not going to happen in VR too. So I've seen a lot of VR and AR stuff, mostly VR, but some AR, um, coming from indies. And again, just like with indie games, um, traditional indie games, the, the VR stuff is, is also just as exciting and innovative. And, um, but I think it's also what I think is great right now for indies is that the VR and AR spaces are so nascent and, and so new is that they can have just as much influence on that right now compared to the traditional game model that came before. And so, so they're, they're in a position because it's pretty much, it's, it's mostly a level playing field at the moment in terms of who's making what and, you know, who's coming up with the cool ideas and interfaces and all that kind of thing. And yeah, some companies have a certain level of money power behind them so they can innovate more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stuff like, um, like Epic's Robo Recall game is really cool. It's really fun to play. It looks really slick. Um, but what else would you expect from Epic? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, you know, large commercial operation, but, um, so yeah, I, I think I think indie developers should embrace the new technology, they, you know. But again, I realize for a lot of them, just getting the hardware alone is is not easy. It's expensive. Right. Absolutely. That's a, that's a major hurdle that so many people have to overcome. But I think that you're right that because there is no killer app at this point, now is probably a good time for indie developers to you know, get in on the ground floor and show that innovation. I think so because I mean they they very well could be the ones who create the killer app you know, someone out there. So it's, I mean, why not try it? There you go. That's kind of inspiring. I like that. Well, Kate, I have one last thing I want to talk to you about. Um, and that is something you've already mentioned. It's that steam saturation. Now that's something that we've talked about on this show, uh, in the past multiple times about, um, because it affects so many indie developers, people who want to make games, people who want to make their projects, their dream projects sometimes. How do you rise above in, in this industry, how do you make your game stand out? What do we do about Steam saturation? And I'm sure you're keeping an eye on, you know, what Steam is doing now, getting rid of, you know, green light and moving to Steam mm-hmm. Direct. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that, and what does this look like in the future moving forward? Well, it's it's going to be challenging. I mean, this is this is one of those areas where the distribution model for games, especially indie games, is is going to constantly change. And um, you know, Steam has had a tremendous amount of success. I mean, without it. You know, arguably the indie movement that we, as we've seen over the last roughly five years or so, just wouldn't have existed. Right. right. And um, so, you know, I think a lot of credit has to be given to Steam. And I know that a lot of people will complain about it. And I, of course, there's there's something to complain about every platform. Let's talk about. <laughs> how about we talk about the, you know, the iOS store for starters in terms of complaints. Well, right, absolutely. I mean, that uh, ties into this very much. Yeah. Right. So I mean, we can pick and choose all kinds of platforms to complain about and to you know say well it's not ideal. Well, of course, there's no ideal ideal model out there. I mean, I what I do think is that we're setting ourselves up for the potential for having. In terms of better distribution models, I mean, everyone goes to Steam. Why? Because they've got the bandwidth. You know, they've got their system set up. They've made it really easy. Um, they've got an audience. That's the most important thing is that there's a massive, massive audience that's there. 
um, and ready for, you know, people waiting. But it's like discoverability is the biggest problem now. It's like, okay, fine, you know, I, I'll put my game up on Steam and, I'll, you know, hopefully somebody will buy it. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, that's what every, you and whatever 10,000, 20,000 other, whatever the number is now, they're all <laughs> thinking the same thing. Hopefully mm -hmm. someone will see my game. So obviously that's one of the number one things that we always get asked in the IHDA from indies is advice on marketing. And so we have a marketing special interest group. And so we, you know, those people have often helped indies and, you know, we have a couple of webinars on our website about marketing with little or no budget, like how, do, what kind of techniques can you use to market your game? Um, because we understand, I mean, all, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I often get asked, you know, what, what's the biggest thing that's lacking in, in game developers, especially indie developers. I'm like, it's not, the, it's not the skill. It's not the passion. They've got that easily. It's the, it's the business skills. It's the marketing skills. It's like, how do you run a business? You know, how do you do your taxes? How do you do marketing? Right. You know, all of those skill sets. And so I often encourage indies, you know, you really should take advantage of any programs out there. A lot of cities, a lot of states, a lot of different resources out there, like free seminars on how to do your taxes, free seminars on how to do basic HR for your small business. I mean, there's all kinds of small business resources out there that any indie, any developer can and should take advantage of um, just in terms of building their knowledge because they have to understand they're not making a game, they're building a business. The, the game, whether or not they like that concept is, I understand. So people like, well, no, I just want to focus on the artistic side of it. It's like, that's fine. But if you're, if your game becomes successful, you will suddenly have a business on your hands. And so you have to be prepared for how you run it. Um, and so, you know, it's no different from any entrepreneur out there. Every single entre entrepreneur out there who came up with their crazy idea that suddenly caught on, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, they, they suddenly found themselves in a position where they actually have to create a business and run it. Um, so, you know, so I think one of the things I think is going to help, though, with discoverability, at least in my opinion, is that we need to see more curation going on that slices along different themes. So, like, one of the things I would love to see on Steam that they don't do is put the country of origin. Like, say, I want to see what's coming out of Colombia. I want to play games out of Colombia. I want to play games out of Tehran or out of Iran. I want to play games out of you know this place or that place or that place. Um, you know, do a certain geographic. Of course, you'd expect me to say this is geographer, but um, <laughs> you know, I, well, right, but cool, sure. And I'd love to see a geographic filter because as I I travel around, I speak at a lot of conferences in emerging markets. I was just in Cairo and Turkey just a month, couple months ago, and. Um, you know, it's like, that's one of the frustrations I hear all the time. Um, you know, is, well, there's two levels. One level is like, you know, we're just, we're just a few developers in Cairo. Um, you know, we're going to put our game on Steam. Hopefully somebody's going to notice us. And, you know, but I'm like, so on the, the good side of that is that, as I tell them, you're on a level playing field with everyone else who's on there. So it's not like somebody from, you know, somebody from you know wherever chicago has a better advantage on you because they technically don't but that what you the potential advantage though is that people want to explore content from other places so and i don't think it really matters the location matters that much to a lot of game players it doesn't because frankly a lot of people still don't still don't know that rovio came from finland that angry birds came from finland 
You know, they don't know that. They, right. they think it's, well, it's a great successful game. It must come from the United States. <laughs> and um, it's like, oh, the geocentrism. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so there, I think there's different kinds of curation that can be done. You know, curation around game types, um, you know, game art form, I mean, all kinds of things like that. Like, I want to play games that look like Limbo, for example. You know, like, well, what does that mean? Well, I want to play games that have a really unique art style that's not just... You know, it, or I want to play games that are only 8-bit. You know, I, I love 8-bit games. That's all I want to play. You know, all that kind of stuff. But I think there's ways of doing curated communities like that that I think we're going to see more and more of where it might be websites that have nothing to do with Steam um, or their websites that actually reference Steam, but they are, you know, doing their own level of curation to help elevate the visibility of certain game types to certain communities. I know... From my perspective, what I've seen is happening more and more where there it's small right now, but I think it's going to pick up more speed where because people, they do the same thing with film. They do the same thing with books. I mean, look at a bookstore. You walk in a bookstore, if you go to a bookstore, um, you know, <laughs> and what's there? There's sections. There's sections on sci-fi, on fantasy, on history, on politics, on their, everything. You know, the whole bookstore model is that it's all curated. And then it's all in certain sections, depending on what your interests are. Sure. And I think, um, you know, we as a game industry, I think we just, you know, try and move closer and closer to that kind of model. Because at least from the bookstore model, it works. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Do you, from what we know about Steam Direct, and there's some new information coming out recently with, uh, you know, curators and their role in it, um, and and, and moving away from green lights and and hopefully getting rid of uh, what they call fake games, um, is that is that a step towards that? Do you think is that going to help? We'll we'll see. It sounds like it could help, um, based on what I know of Steam Direct. I mean, it sounds like it could help, but I'm not sure. Um, sure. You know, it's just it's just too early to know. Um, but I, you know, if if it does help with this issue, with the curation issue, and with helping, you know, come up with these kind of like special curated packages or curated collections and things like that. Um, then great. Um, I think that would help. But even then, of course, we're going to we're going to introduce potentially a whole another layer of the inclusion versus exclusion argument. It's like, why is my game? My game is fits that description. Why is my game not in your collection? Right. You know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's going to be a whole cluster fun to deal with. <laughs> that's probably a good note to end on kate edwards thank you so much for talking to me i do ask my guests to share a piece of advice at the end of every episode now you've shared an abundance of advice already on you know being a being a business owner and approaching things from a business perspective and um, you know not being shy finding ways to challenge yourself is there anything else that you want to send people home with today well, I, w- I would say, and I know it's going to sound trite or cliche, but honestly, I mean, I, I've been around this industry long enough to know that it works, but I mean, you really, really have to take your own destiny into your own hands. I mean, it's I see a lot of people and meet a lot of people who will uh, incessantly complain about some aspect that's unfair. And yeah, there's a lot of things that are unfair, not only in the game industry, but in any industry, in any workforce around the world. But basically, you need to take it by your own hands and just do, you know, forge ahead. And you have to kind of develop a certain level of fearlessness. And if it takes you time to reach that, 
um, then challenge yourself again. Like I said before, challenge, find ways to challenge yourself, whether, no matter how you define that, that could be challenging yourself to be a better public speaker because you're so, so introverted or to be even to be able to network you know, efficiently in a room with other developers, if that's something that scares you, um, challenge yourself to be a better programmer or a better artist, you know, take feedback very objectively as you can, you know, put your work out there for people to critique and listen to what they're saying, be a really good listener to what they're saying about your work and take it to heart. And, you know, you can, you can deal with the signal to noise ratio. You, you know, you kind of basically, if there's a lot of people just trolling, just tune those out. Don't worry about what the trolls say. Focus on what the good substantive feedback is and try and do better. And, um, you know, I think that's really a cycle that we need to put ourselves in. Um, like, like I said with myself, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that drives me is my curiosity. And that's never going to stop. I mean, I'm curious about everything. And so that drives my interest in culturalization. It drives my interest in seeing this industry be better because that's part of my curiosity. Can What will the game industry look like if we actually don't have crunch time anymore? If we actually have developers focused on what they do best and not worrying about whether or not they're going to get paid for the work they did, you know, things like that. And so, um, so yeah, I guess challenge yourself would be the number one thing I would leave people with. That is some pretty impressive advice from Kate Edwards, the executive director at the International Game Developers Association. Um, Kate, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks very much. And Kate, if people have really enjoyed this talk, they've never heard about IGDA before, how do they find the company? How do they find you out on those interwebs if they want to follow along with what you do? Um, they can go to IGDA.org. So it's really simple to find the website for the, for the IGDA. Uh, for myself, um, I am on Twitter as IGDA underscore ED. Makes a lot of sense. It's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice and easy. I like it. Cool. Well, Kate, thank you so much again. Kate Edwards of the International Game Developers Association. Thank you for joining us this week. Again, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas you'd like to share, you can email me at logan at blackshowmedia.com or reach out on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. This podcast is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm dedicated to helping independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. It's the company's mission to help game developers get more of what they want out of a rewarding opportunity in the game industry more fans, and sustainable revenue to keep them moving forward. Blackshell Media also has an educational branch to their company, where they offer free articles and resources for aspiring and growing developers, which is why we get to bring this show to you every single week. You can find Blackshell Media on the web at blackshellmedia.com and on Twitter at blackshellmedia. This show is on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the web, as well as the Blackshell Media blog. If you enjoy what we're doing here and want us to keep doing it, or if you have things you'd like us to change, please go to your favorite podcast provider and leave us a review so that we can keep sharing these episodes each week with you. Special thanks this week goes out to Raghav Mather, Daniel Doan, and Raquel Hayner, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for the use of his song, Going Higher. I'm Logan Schultz, and you've been listening to Indie Insider. We'll see you next week.